Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And if you are listening to this particular episode, please note that this is a bonus episode that is a companion piece to my review of Insomnia. And you should only be listening to this if you have finished Stephen King's magnum opus The Dark Tower. If you have not begun reading it, if you have only read a few of the entries in that long-running series, uh, you should turn back because I'm going to get into the ending of the Dark Tower series. So this particular bonus review is for hardcore Stephen King fans that have finished the Dark Tower. So if you haven't finished, please turn around, go read the Dark Tower, then come back and listen to this. But if you are listening to this without having listened, I'm sorry, without having read... the Dark Tower series, you're going to get spoiled about everything. So those of you who have listened to the Insomnia review and those of you that are sticking around for this means that you have read the Dark Tower series and you have been waiting for this moment for me to talk about the first thing that we're going to talk about here, and that is the Crimson King himself. Actually, guys, the uh, b- before I get to... Getting into my thoughts, I wanted to read a listener email from Quinn, and it's a it's an email that's very specific to the ending of the Dark Tower, so it makes it very appropriate for this particular bonus episode, and it goes into uh, detail about the Crimson King and and Quinn's thoughts. So I'm just gonna read it here, and if at any point anyone wants to share their thoughts on the ending of the Dark Tower. Please feel free to do so because I really enjoyed getting this particular email and Quinn writes, Dear Mr. Stephen Kingcast, I'm not one of those people that constantly complains about the Dark Tower ending. I liked it. Actually, when I first read it, I was reeling at how awesome it was. Even the Crimson King showdown and Randall Flagg's deaths were awesome to me because this crazy journey was finally ending and I was so excited to see what would happen. I was totally loving every minute of it, savoring every second I got to spend with characters I had grown so close to. Then about a month after I finished, I got to thinking about it, and I really wish some parts were different. Here's what I would have liked to have seen. Number one, I don't care if the Cotet dies or not. It's probably better that some of them do because it's so amazingly touching when Roland recites the names of his dead at the tower. Anyways, I wanted Mordred to be blackly evil, but I thought it was intentional on King's part to show his emotional, I just want to be loved side for a reason, until Mordred died. And Quinn, I'm going to be getting to that specifically as I talk about the Crimson King. Anyway, then Quinn continues to write, Then it disappointed me because it would have been cooler if he was blackly evil. However, since he had that emotional side, I really thought he was going to go to his other dad, the Crimson King, and try to band up with him, but be ignored, which would make him sad enough to kill the Crimson King and be on Roland's side, thus fulfilling the prophecy that he would kill his father. It is never explicitly stated that the prophecy said he has to kill his white father, just his father. He has two fathers, his white father, Roland, and his red father, the Crimson King. 
I really thought he would kill the Crimson King to fulfill his prophecy. That would be a cool twist. After all, he could be potentially more powerful than the Crimson King since he has the Gunslinger's blood in him too. They could have had a cosmic mind battle similar to its ending, and both of them could have died after hurting each other too much for either to live, which would actually make more sense than Roland killing one of them since a gun shouldn't be able to fight their intense magic. It would have been less of a deus, us ma sorry, deus ex machina than a random artist kid from Insomnia erasing the Crimson King because Mordred has something to do with the book and Patrick Danville doesn't. Shit, why not have Eddie erase the Crimson King from a drawing he made instead of Patrick? I could swallow that better. I mean, Eddie has shown his otherworldly artistic abilities by crafting working keys and doors by drawing them. It would be better than Patrick stepping in as a deus ex machina. So those are two ways the Crimson King would have died that would have been better. I like the Mordred one, though. Number two. You might be thinking, but wait, that means Roland doesn't get a final battle if this would happen. Yes, he does. After Mordred kills the Crimson King and dies from battle wounds that the Crimson King left on him, Randall Flagg could see an opportunity since no one is keeping him from the tower anymore except Roland. Flagg's boss, the Crimson King, is dead. Now, instead of just killing Roland, Flagg could want to own the tower himself and control all worlds. So he could reach the tower just as Roland and his Kotet, if they still live, were about to go in, and it could be a battle to see who wins the tower. Roland's guns could misfire or always magically misflag like they did in the first book, and Roland would have to throw aside his weapon to one of his Kotet and charge Flagg taking him by surprise just long enough for one of his surviving Kotet to run inside the tower with Roland's gun, commanding the top room to open to open to them by the power of the symbol on the gun, which is the only way to get to the top room, just in time for Flag to kill Roland with his magic, thereby having Roland sacrifice himself to save his Kotet and the tower. When they get inside to the top room, they shut the door on Flag so he can't get in, since he doesn't have the gun with the sign of Eld, which is the only way to get inside. At the top of the tower, they can see all the universes and everything going on inside them, similar to Jack at the end of the Talisman. They have infinite power and control, which is what the Crimson King would have used to destroy everything. They use the power to kill Flag, restore the beams, and keep a constant watch over the tower to keep it safe forever. Bam! That's a good ending. Now, don't get me wrong, I like the ending. I just didn't like it, love it like I would have loved something along the lines of my ending that I've just shared. I actually did love the loop ending that supports that Ka is a wheel, but the whole Crimson King not being super powerful and just a crazy guy throwing sneeches, and both Flag and the Crimson King's sort of lackluster deaths were not as great as they could have been. I didn't like the Patrick Danville deus ex machina either, as I said it would have been okay if Eddie was the one that drew the picture, but Patrick isn't at all related to any of the story until the last hundred pages or so of a multiple thousand page series, so he doesn't deserve to kill the Crimson King. Someone else actually from the series deserves to. Just my opinion. By the way, after all this ranting, I still think you should know that my last, that the last book is my favorite regardless of what I said because it was still an awesome end to an even more awesome journey. Thanks for listening. I know I was long-winded. Quinn. So Quinn, thank you for writing in. I think it was a great email. You do not need to apologize at all. Um, I think that this showed a lot of thought about it and like I said, I'm going to be getting into... Oh, my thoughts on the Crimson King and Patrick Danville's inclusion. <clears throat> and similarly to you, Quinn, I had issues after I finished, and there are certain wants that I had that were not met by Stephen King, and it's taken me a long time to come to terms with what he was doing. 
And I think the fact that we did not see an all-powerful Crimson King, but a whiny, impotent, weak old man is definitely purposeful on his part. So with that out of the way, I think it's time for me to get into to my thoughts. But anyone, if you uh, want to ever write in and share your thoughts similarly to what Quinn did, feel free to write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So... As I stated in the review, this is the first time that King puts a name on the big bad of his universe, the Crimson King. He first manifests himself in Derry, the city that we known famously from the pages of It that had also housed a very famous villain in Stephen King's pantheon, the, the spider, the clown, Pennywise, It. So for him to revisit Derry and then present an even more devastating and dangerous villain um, really shows how how epic and cosmic this particular character is. So this is a book, Insomnia, that is continually mocked by the audience, who I believe don't give it a fair chance. Regardless of how you may feel, you know, I mean, this is significant. Because this is, like I said, the first time we encounter the Crimson King. This is the most dangerous villain in Stephen King's career. He is so powerful that even the ever-popular Randall Flagg serves him. But just like Flagg, there are some major inconsistencies with the Crimson King. And the inconsistencies come from his depiction with Insomnia, which don't really line up with the character that we eventually meet in the Dark Tower 7 the Dark Tower. So Randall Flagg is off the hook in this particular episode. And if you are Dark Tower fans and been listening to the bonus episodes along the way, that you'll know that Randall Flagg tends to be the the subject of my analysis of the inconsistencies of a character presented across a series of novels. But now, let's get to the, the Crimson King himself. The first description that we get from him, from Ed Deepno, uh, Ed says, he's not King Herod, though. It's the Crimson King. Herod was merely one of his incarnations. Crimson King jumps from body to body and generation to generation like a kid using stepping stones to cross a brook, Ralph, always looking for the Messiah. He's always missed him, but this time could be different because Derry's different. All lines of force have begun to converge here. Ed's ranting suggests that the Crimson King is more of a incorporor... Sorry. Incorpor incorporeal that's it that's the one because the crimson so ed's ranting suggests that the crimson king is more of an incorporeal spirit along the lines of tack from desperation who can travel from body to body but we know that by the end of the dark tower series that this isn't the case the crimson king is a physical creature he is a man who is locked on one of the floors of the Dark Tower itself. Not the top, the way that he's presented here in the picture by Patrick Danville, but he is locked in the Dark Tower itself. So any of the body jumping that's suggested here cannot be interpreted as definitive aspects of this character. And it's more along the lines of the ravings of a lunatic who gets a sense of what the Crimson King is, but because his mind is breaking apart, can't fully process it. Side note, the mention that all lines of force have begun to converge here has to be a bit reference to the beam, right? Anyway, going back to the Crimson King, I believe it was in my bonus episode of Drawing of the Three? Yeah, it was, when I first talked about the Crimson King. And I don't know why, uh, because he does not play into that novel at all, but something 
uh, had burst from the bushes of my subconscious into the pavement of my mind, and I was determined to run it down. Uh, so I discussed the perception of the Crimson King versus the reality of the Crimson King, and it's important to unpack this in order to get a better handle on who the Crimson King is. Now, I'm going to put it right out there. By the time the Dark Tower concluded, when I, when I closed the book, I was majorly disappointed. And a lot of that disappointment stemmed from the depiction of the Crimson King, who had been built up for 10 years as a universal threat, who employed one of the three fates to do his dirty work here in the pages of Insomnia. Later, in Low Men in Yellow Coats, it's revealed that he has monstrous henchmen who ride around in monster cars who have been stealing psychics to break the beams. That's terrifying and ambitious. And in Black House, we meet Mr. Munchen, a.k.a. Lord Malshin, the Crimson King's right-hand man, who is a bona fide monster, who pals around with a talking crow and eats children for fun when he isn't abducting them to bring to the ruin the Dark Tower. So every subsequent description of the Crimson King between Insomnia and the Dark Tower Book 7 made him more and more of a threat and more and more evil. Like I said at the beginning of the Insomnia review, he's the Thanos of the Stephen King universe. He's the Dark Side, the Emperor Palpatine, the Doctor Doom, the Sauron, the Lord Voldemort, you name it. He's the biggest bad of all the Stephen King bads. Or at least, he was supposed to be. He is explained to be one of the tower's all-timers, a being that even Clotho and Lachesis can't comprehend. This is the guy that employed the walking dude himself, Randall Flagg. You know if someone as powerful as Flagg is working for you, then you must be powerful. It isn't just that, though. The Dark Tower is becoming more and more a culminating piece for King, who had realized that it was the connective tissue between his works. So the last three novels and the supporting tie-ins that led into it, he wrote with the knowledge that all of his work was building to something, which by association meant that the villainy he'd created was building to something. If he had created such heinous and memorable monsters like Barlow, Flag, Pennywise, and Tack, then the Crimson King, the end villain, for the end-all, be-all Stephen King culminating event had to be the most evil thing in the history of all things. But that is not what we get. At some point, King decides to make his ultimate villain an impotent, screeching old man trapped by his own ambition. The 20-something-year-old that read the conclusion of the Dark Tower could not get behind this interpretation because it wasn't the interpretation that he wanted. But the Gospel according to Mick and Keith will tell you that you can't always get what you want. Maybe we didn't get the all-powerful villain. And the 30-something me is fine with that. We didn't get the great and all-powerful Oz. We got the man behind the curtain. And what the 20-something-year-old me didn't see was that this didn't mean that the depictions created an inconsistency. It only meant that the depictions that we had seen of the Crimson King leading up to that point had been illusory. Smoke and mirrors. I think it's a wonderful depowering of evil. I mean, why should evil be glorified? King makes ultimate evil look foolish, and shouldn't it be just that? It made me look back at his other works, and you can see where he begins at that. Flag struts around the pages of the stand like he's untouchable, but the second there's a conflict in the concluding pages, he turns into a whimpering blowhard and flees. His cowardly actions repeat themselves in the pages of Eyes of the Dragon. 
In the pages of Needful Things, the devilish Leland Gaunt begs Alan Pangborn for his bag back, and like Randall Flagg, runs from the town to lick his wounds. And those are two of the more magical, powerful characters that King has concocted, and they're both cowards to the core. In the pages of the Dark Tower, King will revisit his concept of the spider villain with the birth of Mordred, who should have been the most threatening and terrifying monster to ever scuttle across one of King's stories, but instead King, determined to make evil look whimpering and weak, turns this monster into a vulnerable, lost, lonely, and wretched creature that needs to be put out of his misery. Part of it is because by the conclusion of the Dark Tower, we are reaching the end of all things, and where things had once been universal have since shrunk and are robbed of their original power. Part of it is because I believe that King was putting the final touches on what he thought for a while at least would be his final book. So I imagine he wanted to put his final thoughts about the nature of evil. And if the Crimson King is just that, then his statement is that evil is just pathetic. Okay, so that's just the Crimson King. Now let's look at an insomnia itself. More so than almost any other Stephen King novel, Insomnia is the most important non-Dark Tower novel to fit into the Dark Tower series. The other one is Black House, the sequel to The Talisman. When it comes to Insomnia, however, this is a little tricky. Here's the thing. Stephen King winds up showing up in the pages of The Dark Tower as a character. Stephen King, the writer of The Dark Tower series and Insomnia. So within the larger Dark Tower series, Insomnia is a work of fiction from an author that exists within the Dark Tower series of novels. So when I got to the final book of the Dark Tower, I was frustrated that Insomnia was relegated to being just a book within the world of the Dark Tower characters. But then again, the Dark Tower characters are just characters in the world of the Dark Tower characters, but they're living and breathing. So if Stephen King exists in their multiverse and he is writing their stories and they are functioning as living, breathing creatures, then it suggests that they aren't being written so much as they are being translated. And thusly, the events of the novel Insomnia are translated from a parallel Earth as well. That explains why things don't line up perfectly between the events of Insomnia and the rest of the Dark Tower. So for instance, the random and the purpose are never revisited, at least as much as I remember. Atropos, Clothos, Lachesis, major players in the war with the Crimson King are never seen again. The depiction of the Crimson King suggesting that behind his visual projections is a handsome blonde man is never revisited, though perhaps that young blonde man aged into a Santa Claus um, while imprisoned in the, in, the, in the tower. So when I had gotten to the end of the Dark Tower, I was frustrated that the characters and concepts that we saw here in Insomnia are just relegated to the pages of the book, but it's a book within a book that whose main character is the novelist himself who is writing the series of events based on what's happening in parallel earths. So it's not just a book. It's more than that. And this is the first time that we meet Patrick Danville, a character that I have issues with. Now I loved the twist at the end of this book, that the entire events of this novel revolved around the life of a boy who would one day impact the gunslinger himself. Now that's a ballsy move that could easily alienate non-Dark Tower readers. And I think that that's exactly what happened with a large segment of the population. So at the end of this novel, I loved everything that happened. But this is not the last time that we see Patrick Danville, and the next time we see him is a low point of the Dark Tower series. 
From an imaginative perspective, the fact that he is being held prisoner in the basement of a monster's house is pure fairy tale and is nightmarish, and I love that. I hate what Patrick Danville is, though. When I read Insomnia, I interpreted the role of Patrick Danville as being important in the sense that at some point he saves Roland's life. Technically, yes, that's what happens, but what happens is a lot more important than just saving Roland's life. What happens in the concluding page of the Dark Tower is that Danville is revealed to have the superpower of magic drawing that allows him to literally erase the Crimson King from existence. It's absolutely absurd, and yes, it allows King to check off the Patrick Danville box from his list of dangling plot points that needed to be addressed by the end of the Dark Tower series, but I feel like this was a swing and a miss. I felt like all of the effort that the Crimson King put into killing Patrick Danville was not limited to just Patrick Danville, but was being played out with dozens, if not hundreds of people throughout the multiverse. I felt that Patrick Danville wouldn't play a major part in the series other than having him save Roland's life. Meaning, at some point someone could shoot at Roland in a crowd and Patrick accidentally takes the bullet. Or he knocks Roland out of the way of an oncoming car, or something along those lines. I did not expect Patrick to be Roland's final companion on the last stretch of his journey, and him having super magic drawing powers might be consistent with the fact that he's drawn a picture of Roland, but then again, he's just a kid, and kids draw all the time. Because Patrick draws a picture of a kid, it's a bit of a stretch that it's suggesting that he will one day grow up to have magic drawing powers. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the end of the Dark Tower. I don't buy into all of it. I don't mind that Roland has to start over again. I don't mind that the Crimson King turns out to be a joke. Hell, I don't even mind that Flag is killed off like a punk. But I do mind what King does with the overimportance of Patrick Danville. It would have been incredible if, like I said, the Crimson King was trying to kill every innocent bystander that somehow got in the way of a bullet that might otherwise have hit Roland. It just so happens that we got to know this particular bystander makes the Crimson King and Roland look incredibly powerful. That the Crimson King can't outwardly touch the Gunslinger, much in the way that Flag can't, but instead to have to manipulate everything around him. And it shows the sacrifice that innocence would have to make in order to serve Roland's quest. Even if you don't subscribe to my theory of what Patrick could have been, it's hard to argue that the promise of Patrick and what we get out of Patrick are two different things. Clotho and Lachises tell Ralph, 18 years from now, just before his death, the boy is going to save the lives of two men who would otherwise die, and one of those men must not die if the balance between the random and the purpose is to be maintained. At least one of the men clearly is Roland, with the second one most likely Eddie. However, by the time Roland encounters Patrick, Eddie's dead. So his prophecy doesn't work out the way that King suggested it would. Of course, you can argue that the machinations of the Crimson King managed to kill Eddie before he reaches Patrick, and there's never a guarantee that characters won't die. After all, with characters like Atropos running around, everything is possible, but usually when an author writes something like that, it's a seed that's planted that's expected to grow. So I will get into... I'm going to get into Patrick Danville in much more detail in the final book of The Dark Tower, but in the meantime, rereading this made me realize um, that I still have major problems with Patrick Danville. Okay, guys, and the next thing that we have up is uh, the white, and the white is that all power, all it's just good. It's just the good power of the universe to combat the evil that combats, you know, your Randall Flags, your Lord Malshans, your... Uh, Crimson Kings, and at one point, Ralph is literally filled with a white-colored power. Um, so, I mean, the, the white, it definitely makes an appearance here. It's not just referred to, but it makes an appearance. 
Now I want to talk about the Dark Tower. I mean, because this novel is immensely important to the Dark Tower series because it gives us the most information to date on the Dark Tower itself. In the three Dark Tower books that King had written up until this point, he had only acknowledged the existence of the Dark Tower, but hadn't explained what the hell the tower actually is. I mean, we know that it's a linchpin with 12 beams shooting out from its top, and from the way that Blaine the Mono describes it in The Wastelands, it's a physical place, one whose steps Roland will climb in the concluding novel. However, the depiction of the tower in Insomnia presents a much different take, with it functioning less of a physical construction and more of a means of existing. All human life operates on the first, flu first few floors of the tower, making them short-timers. The doctors reside at higher levels, but no one except for the Crimson King resides in the tower at all, at least not in the physical one, as evidenced from the Dark Tower 7, the Dark Tower. So what does this seeming contradiction mean? The way that I see it, there are three possibilities. One, when placing this into the larger Dark Tower body of work, we shouldn't believe that the events are actually playing out the way they appear to, as Insomnia, like I said, is just a book that Roland winds up holding in his hand. So the fact that the depiction of the tower seems out of place with ideas that are never explored again makes more sense if you just accept that within the Dark Tower book series, Insomnia is just a book. The second way of looking at it. The tower is both a physical construction and a means of existing. Because we have seen the tower be the tower and the rose, two physical objects, which is to say that the tower also... I mean, which is so because we have seen the tower be the tower and we have seen the tower represented as the rose growing from the, the crack in the city street who is to say that the tower also isn't a state of being perhaps the building is a shadow cast by an incredible sun so to speak that the building is 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 it just another doorway because we've seen a number of magic doorways so perhaps the ultimate doorway is the, the physical tower, except this time it's not to a parallel world, but to another state, the ultimate state of being, the mind of Gon. And then three, the physical tower could just be a trap. Perhaps the physical thing that Roland sought out after all those years is just a um, temple that's been built to honor the concept seen here in the pages of Insomnia, except with Roland's quest, the object becomes a bastardization of what the thing is supposed to be. Maybe it's Stephen King's equivalent to Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge, a temptation and test to lure you in and then punish you for your sins. In this case, the tower supports the concept of being punished for focusing on the destination, not the journey, which is exactly what happens to Roland. A date that is alluded to here with Dorrance Marsteller's poem from Stephen Dobin's each thing I do, I rush through so I can do something else. The shifting definition of the tower goes hand in hand with mythology that King crafts here. I mean, we have life, death, purpose, and random. We have the short term, the short timers, long timers, and all timers. So I think that there was a lot of important things that King crafted here that we never see again, but it isn't to, to state that we should just outwardly dismiss him. Because I know that certainly with purpose and random, that can be seen whether he explains it or not in Pet Cemetery. And in my review of Pet Cemetery, I referred to it as uh, chaos and order, but it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, if you think about it as random and purpose. And now let's talk about the Green Man, okay? Uh, and it's the last thing that we'll we'll talk about in this bonus edition. Uh, as Ralph trades his life to save Natalie's, Lois is visited by a mysterious green entity. Now, we had just witnessed the appearance of Gon, the ultimate all-timer. We know it isn't the Crimson King, 
because we see him later and nothing about his actions or appearance suggests that he was the one who visited Lois. Lois herself knows that it isn't Atropos. The two other doctors are with Ralph at the moment and Dorrance had been described as having an aura of a much different color. So, who could this figure possibly be? My guess is, is that it's Maturin the Turtle, the Guardian of the Beam. Now why? Because this takes place in Derry, and we've seen that the power of the turtle has existed within the town to combat the spider from it, and has stepped in to help short-timers before, so why not now? If your answer is that it couldn't be the turtle because the turtle is dead in the pages of it, well, at that point, the losers had stepped out of our world into a place beyond time and space, so yeah, the turtle was dead, but it doesn't mean that it was dead in 1994 when Ralph and Lois had to stop at Deepno. And Ed had just expanded the mythology of the Dark Tower. I'm sorry, King had expanded the mythology of the Dark Tower uh, in the Wastelands. Uh, so the idea of Guardians, which he had just touched upon in the Wastelands, could still be fresh in his mind. But the number one reason I think that the figure is the turtle is because turtles are green. And that's a dumb reason, I know, but it's all that I got. Honestly, I think that King was setting it up for a later novel. And he either forgot about it or didn't care enough to work into a narrative that made any sense. I guess another thought is that could be Randall Flagg. And you know, that's a bit of a stretch, I know. And I, I don't think that's Flagg at all. But, I mean, let's just follow the train of thought. I mean, when Ralph sticks his arm in the kingfish's mouth to trigger the bomb that was placed inside his forearm, a green flash goes off that makes Ralph think of the Emerald City from the Wizard of Oz. This city is soon visited within the pages of Wizard and Glass, and the Wizard of Oz is actually the man in black himself, Rattle Flag. He's someone that has always served himself, so maybe he just like throwing a wrench in the grand scheme of things. Who knows? But it's a question that is never fully answered, but it's definitely one that I thought that I would propose right here and now. All right, everyone, that is all that I've got. And uh, if you have any awesome emails in your brain that you want to send your way like Quinn had done, feel free to do so by sending them out to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And make sure that you stick around next week as I dive into Rose Matter, the uh, story that basically takes Helen Deepno's story and, and turns that character and that that type of character into into the main character um, of a novel all of her all of her own all right everyone so if you haven't done so already feel free to head on over to itunes and and write a review and a subscription because that would greatly help me out and may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next week where m-o-o-n spells stephen kingcast